Welcome everyone to Roger's List. This is the podcast where I'm watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies with a rotating cast of amazing co-hosts. My name is Steve Gunley, aka The Continental Lover. My <laughs> guests today are a couple of bouncy little ducklings from the Film Shake podcast. Please welcome Nick Loop and Jordan Courtney. Hi guys. Hey Steve, great to be here, man. Thanks for having oh. us. Excited to talk about um, this movie. Me too. Oh my God. Yeah, this is this is an exciting one. Uh, we are talking today about uh, Francois Truffaut's Day for Night, a.k.a. La Nuit Americaine. And I'd like to just add a disclaimer here, as I did in our Clio from 5 to 7 episode, that I'm going to butcher a whole lot of French words here. So I apologize to uh, our French listeners or anyone with working ears. Uh, Day for Night is one of the great movies about making movies. Uh, kind of, you know, that's even the tagline of the film is that a movie for people who love movies. Uh, and it's kind of a departure from the usual things that we see Francois Truffaut do. This is the first time we've talked about Truffaut on our show. He's going to pop up a few more times because he's a pretty huge deal. Um, and this one is kind of a departure for him. You know, you usually associate French new wave filmmakers like this with something very, very maudlin, very pretentious, very self-serious. And Day for Night is like so much fun. Like it's kind of ridiculous how much fun this movie is. I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll get into it a little more detail. But first I wanted to ask you guys, uh, well, I, when given the option of movies to talk about, you wanted to talk about Day for Night. Now, why did you want to talk about this one? Well, uh, I guess I'll go first. I had seen this before and... Uh, we talked a little bit about how I work at the public library here in Louisiana. I remember mm -hmm. when I was a teenager working at the library and I still, still stuck in the library, but <laughs> I love it. Uh, I would <laughs> scan the DVD collection on my breaks and I would remember discovering the French new wave films there, you know, got into Godard and Truffaut for a time. And, uh, I remember watching, you know, the 400 blows, uh, from Truffaut, his first film and how much yeah. uh, it, it affected me. And I, I still love that movie. And I, I was always kind of scared to see his other movies because, you know, I've seen a handful of his other ones like Jules, Jules and Jim and Day for Night. Um, and I still like them a lot. But I, I think he's kind of a rare filmmaker where he kind of, you know, just went out in a bang on his first film, just really made a masterpiece just right out of the gate. And then he had to live up to that. And I'd, I'd say out of all the films of his that I've seen uh, day for night is the closest to living up to that first film. And, you know, just, just being a movie lover watching this movie is hard. Like you said, it's hard not to like it just to see the ins and outs and the behind the scenes and the disaster management <laughs> that goes on yeah, behind, yeah. behind the scenes of making a movie. So uh, I think, and, and also just being a creative person in a, you know, making my own short films and like writing my own scripts and stuff growing up. Well, cool. Yeah. Uh, so, so Nick, how about you? Uh, why did you want to talk about this one? Well, I got a minor at LSU about two decades ago in film. Minor was the mm -hmm. best that they offered there. And I just assumed because it's starting to get foggy. Oh, I've seen so many Truffaut movies. I've seen probably a dozen of them. And then I realized cool. I'd seen maybe well, not maybe. I definitely saw 400 Blows. I love that movie. But I saw it on my own oh, yeah. time because I remembered the semester that they offered French New Wave Cinema. I took Italian neorealism instead. So I okay, yeah. I missed out on so many of these movies. I think I've seen two Godard films, and I had seen 400 Blows and one other Truffaut film, but never Day for Night. And this one always looked like a lot of fun. And again, I thought 
I just assumed I had seen it, and I realized very quickly I had not. So that that was really it. It was a personal blind uh, blind spot for me, and I really wanted to watch it. That's awesome. All right, so this is one you're coming to blind. Yes, I. That's awesome. I knew that it was named Day for Night, that it was a lighter to faux film, and that was about it. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, all right. I'm I'm excited to get into it with the first timer. I've I've seen this movie once before. Uh, and I, I remember loving it the first time and being excited to rewatch it now. I wasn't sure if it was going to hold up as well as I remembered it. Uh, it absolutely does. Spoiler alert. I really like this movie a lot. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is going to be a fun one to dig into because yeah, like you said, like, uh, a Truffaut is kind of known for being this very self-serious filmmaker and this movie is sprightly and it moves at a great clip. It's so fast paced and entertaining and you learn so much about the actual process of movie making. Uh, I just love it. Let's let's dig into some of the background here. So Day for Night, or La Nuit Americaine, was released May 23rd, 1973. It was directed by Francois Truffaut, and it stars Jacqueline Bisset, Valentina Cortez, Dani, Jean-Pierre Leo, Jean-Pierre Almond, and Francois Truffaut, basically playing himself. Right. So... I really want to dig into Truffaut here because he's definitely one of the most important figures in French cinema and in cinema in general. Uh, you know, he's synonymous with the French New Wave, and that's usually credited to him as, like, creating the movement. Uh, we on this show kind of counter that because we watch Cleo from 5 to 7 by Agnes Varda. Yeah. <laughs> Varda arguably uh, started the movement before any of the others did, but I digress. Yeah, I, I, I listen to y'all's Cleo from five to seven episode the other day and I really appreciated that um yeah you know because you know Truffaut and Godard get a lot of credit but yeah I think it's it's really awesome to see Varda getting so much uh acclaim uh especially you know now that she's passed and the uh, mm-hmm. the box set from Criterion Collection that just came out like celebrating her life's work so uh, yeah, I really uh, dug y'all's episode on that. I appreciate y'all. Oh, thank you. Out. Thank you. Yeah, that that was a fun discovery for me. I'd never seen that movie before. I, I really loved it. Yeah, I just watched it um, for the first time, like maybe a few weeks before I found y'all's episode on it. So it was a good timing. It's so, it's just very rich. Like if you're a, if you're a film nerd and you really like digging into the mise-en-scene and really like kind of uh, getting nerdy about it, that movie is so rich and so rewarding. There's so much to find in there. Uh, so Francois Truffaut, he was born in Paris in 1932. Uh, he spent a lot of time on his own as a kid. He shuffled between various nannies, friends, and relatives because his mother and stepfather were working all the time. Uh, at age seven, he saw his first movie, uh, which I believe was Lost Horizon, and uh, that he became completely obsessed. Uh, he formed a film club in high school, which is where he first became friends and collaborators with a film critic named Andre Bazin. Yeah. Now, Bazin tried to convince Truffaut to work for him, but Truffaut had actually enlisted in the French military. He deployed in 1950, and Truffaut hated his time in the military and spent his entire stint there trying to figure out a way to get out of it. Uh, in fact, he was uh, successful in going AWOL once, but he was uh, captured by military police and put into military prison until André Bazin was able to pull some strings and have him released. Uh, and grateful to his friend, Truffaut decided to accept a position as a film critic at Bazin's magazine, the newly formed Cahiers du Cinema magazine. Uh, that that should trigger a little alarm bells in every film nerd's head. <laughs> right. The Cahiers yeah. du Cinema is <laughs> a sure. huge, uh, a huge pivotal moment for for the French New Wave in particular, but cinema in general. 
Uh, and it was here that Truffaut developed a reputation as a very insightful, very aggressive, sometimes brutal film writer. He was known for his scathing reviews uh, and pointed criticisms of modern French cinema. Uh, and it was during this time that he developed what would become known as the auteur theory. And this is something that a lot of film students still stick to. Uh, I don't really think I adhere to it anymore. But for, for newbies, the auteur theory is basically the idea that the director is the author of his own work and that every director has their own style and it's reflected through that. I think my problem with it, I don't know how you, how y'all come down on it. I feel like it kind of ignores how much of a collaborative process filmmaking is, which is something that this movie weirdly like emphasizes so strongly. Yeah. I don't know. Where, where do you guys come down on that? I mean, yeah. That's an interesting point to make in light of this film where you see the collaboration behind the scenes and then yet you have Truffaut, as the director, you know, author of the author theory. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I guess I see both sides. I, I guess the romantic in me would like to kind of st- to still stick with the author theory. Just, I, I tend to gravitate towards directors and, uh, you know, looking at their filmography, whereas like, you know, most people that are just your average moviegoer aren't paying attention to who the director is or even like, you know, who the composer is or things behind the scenes. But I don't know. There's something about uh, looking at like a specific director's work uh, that's always been interesting to me. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can I can definitely agree with the idea that every filmmaker has their own style and leaves their own imprint on the film. I think it's just like a little reductionist to just say like, oh, the the buck stops with Truffaut on right, this movie. Yeah. Because, you know, they're they're. <laughs> There's so many different decisions that need to go into every little thing that happens in a movie. Yeah. I feel like I want to disagree just to have a, a different opinion out there. <laughs> Do it. I was definitely drawn to this theory in college because I loved Hitchcock a lot. I still do. And I like how much emphasis they put on Hitchcock's work. And when you watch mm-hmm. his movies, it's very obvious. 30 seconds of any Hitchcock film, you can tell he's the director. And I, I really did stick to it a while, but damn it, I'm gonna I'm gonna come around to what you guys just said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. All right. I, I feel we like are changing it, hearts and minds. It is a reductionist view. I it's it's kind of a romanticized view, right? With anything you like to think that maybe it's just even though these guys are French, it's almost an American way of thinking of things, right? Is we're we're mm-hmm. independent, we we do all this work, our life's work, whatever. But masters of our own destiny exactly yeah, yeah. manifest destiny yeah, yeah. with celluloid but the truth exactly is, i think honestly i don't remember what the movie was i wish i could but i just remember thinking damn this is like nine minutes of credits and that was like three thousand people's names and it, yeah. it really <laughs> made me think okay there is a vision here that's unique with certain directors but that that can't come come across without this many people's work. And then really when you start seeing the same names again, even with cinematography, take, okay, here's, here's a goofy example. Take the last two mm. James Bond movies, right? Uh, right. Spectre and Skyfall. Roger Deakins did the cinematography for Skyfall. And the story is better in that movie too. Really. It's just kind of a Batman ripoff, but it holds together a little yeah. better than Spectre's, but the cinematography really makes that movie. That's just something it really I does. can think of recently where, you know, oh, yeah. the same director for both movies, but the cinematography really oh. makes or breaks both of them. I mean, 
to be fair, anytime you have Deacon second stepping behind the camera on your movie, like that's probably oh, it's gonna, gonna make be your movie. it's gonna be amazing yeah. no matter what. Right, which but, maybe cancels out everything I said because no, but no, I mean no, no, no. I, 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 photographer. I think it tracks because sometimes there's gonna be you know an actor or something that really like sells a film for you, you right. know, and it's really gonna vary depending on the audience and who watches it. So, like you can say the intentionality of the director is there, you know, but. Some directors really don't have like a super uh, uh, signature look or yeah. style. You know, they can be more like journeyman kind of filmmakers. And that doesn't mean their movies can't pop. You know, like, again, we're talking about James Bond. Look at Casino Royale. Martin Campbell is not an auteur. He is not like a s distinctive signature filmmaker, but he made a very good film because he had a lot of the elements come together. And that's that's kind of where I come down on it. I think it needs to be like a synthesis of a lot of different ideas. Yeah. Um, I mean, you look at, but I don't know, that's an ongoing debate. I mean, you look at how many people are, you know, behind a production itself and that, like you said, seeing the 3000 names on credits, but I mean, it is a, redu a reductionist view to just consider the director when, you know, just considering the big players involved, like the screenwriter and, uh, you know, the genesis of the film that you're watching to begin with, you know, starting on the page. And then, like Nick said, the cinematography and, uh, you know, the actors who are collaborating with the director and the screenwriter on set and, you know, creating moments as they go. So um, it reminds me, I've been reading this book on uh, Linklater's Dazed and Confused, and they, uh -huh. they go into the history of Slacker and, like, how that film was made and how, you know, it was a super collaborative effort where you just had, like, 100 like over a hundred characters and, uh, you know, just different ideas. You know, this is, uh, what, what late eighties, early nineties, Austin, Texas. So just, uh, you know, the epitome of like hip culture being born right there in that moment. Yeah. And you have all these like random, uh, just almost stream of consciousness characters and, uh, different people adding bits and pieces here and there. Uh, and I mean, ultimately they say it was Linklater's vision in the end that you know helped you know craft the film as as we see it but a lot of people uh you know that made the film apparently were pretty bitter when he got the acclaim that he did you know and his name was stamped on the film as like you know the premier person versus where they felt always you know a lot of them felt like it was you know more of a collaborative effort and they were on an equal playing field not to take anything away yeah. from link later because uh no no work. no not at all Something about this movie um, I love too is, and yeah. I, I guess we can end this digression here is just how much <laughs> it shows how much is out of the director's control, right? There's so many things happening, and a, a movie production is such a large, wide ranging thing that there are just a lot of things that the director can't account for or control, which has a pretty great effect on the end product. Oh, it does absolutely. Like some of these happy accidents can really come together in an interesting way, and we see that happen in this movie and in the movie within the movie. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a it's a provocative theory, the auteur theory. It's something obviously we still can talk about, you know. And uh, so Truffaut kind of transitioned from like this theorist and this writer and this critic to actually being a filmmaker in 1959 with his debut film, The 400 Blows, which we will talk about on a later episode of this show. Uh, but it was a huge movie. It, it had a huge impact on the way that films were going to be made throughout the 60s and 70s and beyond. And it launched what we've came to know as the French New Wave. 
And bolstered by this success, a lot, a lot of other Coyote cinema critics set out to make films of their own. So that's why we get people like Jean-Luc Godard and Claude Chabrol and Eric Romer and Jacques Rivette and all these like really amazing French New Wave filmmakers who came out of the Coyote cinema club. Um, so Truffaut, he earned some acclaim for his follow-up films. He had movies like Shoot the Piano Player, The Soft Skin, and Jules and Jim, which is another one we'll cover here. And uh, offers started coming in from Hollywood as well. He was actually the first choice to direct Bonnie and Clyde, which I did not realize. Uh, they were shopping it around in 1963, and he passed on it, but he actually suggested his friend Warren Beatty uh, for uh, the, the movie, uh, who, of course, he stepped in as a producer and a star. Uh, and Truffaut finally accepted an offer to direct a Hollywood film, and he chose to adapt his very favorite novel, and that's Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 in 1967. But the production was troubled, the movie was a flop, and uh, Truffaut never worked outside of Paris again, except he took on a role as uh, one of the leading roles, surprisingly, in Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, playing the alien expert from France. Yeah, uh, that was my first yeah. exposure to Truffaut. That was why he looks so familiar later on. <laughs> yeah, you know, and he's one of those directors who's actually really not a bad actor. I mean, he doesn't work in English at all, but he's uh, he's got a good presence on screen, which is which is rare for a director. Yeah, he's very sure. natural in that movie. He he carries a lot yeah. of authority for a guy who studies UFOs. Oh yeah, I mean, so Truffaut was a guy. He loved movies so much. He had, his career spanned twenty five years. During that time, he made twenty three movies, which is pretty incredible. In that same time, he also wrote uh, the book Hitchcock Truffaut, yeah. which is based on a series of interviews he did with his personal hero, Alfred Hitchcock. It's still considered kind of like a foundational film text, yeah. so definitely read Hitchcock Truffaut. Uh, but in 1984, when Truffaut was only 52, he suffered a stroke, which led to the eventual diagnosis of an inoperable brain tumor. He died shortly after that, uh, which, is, which is very sad. He died in 1984. Uh, and he could have probably still been working. I mean, like a lot of these guys are, uh, uh Jean-Luc Godard is still yeah, working to this day. 90, like, I, it's insane. Yeah. He's still working. He's got his, just looking at his filmography is insane. Just how much stuff he puts out, but you know, and I would argue, I mean, I, I, I have some opinions on Godard that we'll get into right. in later episodes of this show, but I think 90% <laughs> of his output would probably be unwatchable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just a guess. I don't know. Right. Uh, well, uh, so a little bit about this movie. So the, the title translates to American Night, La Nuit Americaine. And that's a filmmaking process where uh, uh, the date shots are, the images are shot in daytime and then made to appear to be nighttime using a filter over the lens. Now here in the States, we call it day for night shooting, but it's called American Night over in France. And so that's why the translation is... It, they're very different. Like you can tell if you know even rudimentary French, you can tell the La Nuit Americaine does not translate to day for night, but right. the concepts translate. Yeah. Uh, now Truffaut said he preferred using the French title because you can hear it's like a linguistic thing. So like the name La Nuit Americaine, American Night, can also be heard as L'Ennui American or American Boredom. Mm. Uh, and so he see, he liked that that wordplay, and he wanted to kind of keep that in there as a as a sort of commentary on filmmaking as a process. Um, yeah, yeah, and which, which is an interesting idea. Yeah. Um, I like how seamlessly it's worked into the movie too, where they're about to shoot like the stunt scene with the stunt man and uh, the American uh, actress played by Jacqueline Bisset. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, 
Truffaut's character playing the director say, yeah, yeah, tell him we're about to shoot this American night. And she's like, what is that? And then uh, he has to explain it to her. And then she's like, oh, they're going to shoot a day for night. So if you're not familiar with it, it's just kind of spelled out right there. But it's very seamless. It doesn't feel like it's hitting you over the head with like info. Oh, no, no, not at all. Uh, This is an interesting movie, too. I found out that Day for Night was eligible for the Oscars in two separate years. Yeah. And I, I can't really think of any other movie that did that. So it won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film in 1974. And then the following year, in 75, it was nominated for Best Director, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Original Screenplay. And this has to do with some like arcane rules surrounding release dates for foreign films. Right. Uh, it didn't get a wide release in the States until 1975, which qualified it for everything but best foreign language film. Uh, so like it, 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 all these rules have been amended since then. So I don't think it's possible for a movie to get nominations in two different years. Alas, anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's world. kind of an interesting, that's, that's just something you don't really see. Yeah. That was an interesting tidbit of trivia discovering that. Um, so really kind of jumping into the movie, like there, there's, it's not a super plot heavy movie, not necessarily. There there are stories going on here, but it's kind of more in like an Altman vein of like lots of little stories going on around the periphery, but they're all tied in by this one kind of driving force, which is the making of this movie. Basically what we're watching is a film production almost from start to finish. Like we don't quite see the very beginning. We don't quite see the very end, but we're seeing a large portion of the making of this film, which is called Meet Pamela. Uh, Now, I was reading uh, Roger Ebert's review of this movie, and he said that uh, in his interpretation, Meet Pamela was almost surely going to be a stinker. I think that was his term. (laughs) I didn't necessarily read that this was going to be a stinker or that people like were approaching it like it was going to be a bad movie. I don't know. Maybe that's a language barrier or something like, but it it felt like this was a pretty normal kind of drama that they were it shooting. It seemed like the press was taking it very seriously in the interviews. Oh, yeah. It seems, yeah, so I was... Yeah, it seems like Truffaut's kind of riffing on, like, a more studio movie. I mean, they're making it in the studio in uh, Nice, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, it, like, it's not outright, but it, it did. I did get, like, a subtle hint of that, where it's like, oh, we're, we're making this kind of more mainstream uh, less prestigious film. And then especially with all the disaster management, we're like, Oh, well, we'll just, uh, we'll just edit out this scene because now it doesn't work because, you know, our, our character got pregnant or this guy died or these different things happened. So now we have to kind of change our whole story or, or kind of shoot right. it in a goofy way. So I guess, uh, to me that made it, and I guess just the humor and the levity involved of, of like the different disasters that they have to deal with. Uh, and, to me made it seem like, okay, this, you know, you, these are the compromises that end up making a movie like subpar. <laughs> we, we do get kind of the sense that uh, maybe the stars are a little past their prime. You know, we learn that Julie is kind of fresh off what's being called a nervous breakdown. We don't really know the details of that. And then you have uh, uh, the, the aging alcoholic uh, Italian actress and you have the, the older uh, former leading man who's maybe not quite as relevant as he was in the 50s and 60s, you know. So you you have kind of these types that are appearing that might illustrate that maybe this isn't a top, top tier production. Right. But everyone in here seems to be involved. 
and you, you you talk a lot about the 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 disasters that are going on, and there are there are a lot of disasters going on. It would have been very easy for this movie to become a farce, and it never does. In fact, it feels like what we're watching is a relatively normal, successful film shoot. You know, like every film shoot, every production, any play, any time of artistic endeavor that involves more than one person is going to have some kind of conflict. It's going to have some drama. You have to adapt to it. And I think the cool thing about watching this movie is that everyone is so professional and so locked in on what they're doing that they don't let it become like a, a wacky schmacky, like grabbing their hair and like screaming and running around because things aren't working out. It's they're rolling with it. Everyone just immediately, you take the hits, you roll with it. That's interesting. Even when you get some pretty big hits, like in the end, uh, it's a, I mean, we're going to jump around a little bit, but you know, in the end, when we uh, uh, lose one of the actors in a car yeah. accident, That's it. it's a tragic moment. It's something that would have derailed the movie, but they have to keep going. That's it. And they just yeah. have to work their way around it. That's interesting because I, I guess I would have called this a farce or like, you know, it's definitely really it's definitely subdued, but it's, you know, it's nowhere near like an American style farce. But I guess you could say it's like a French farce or something. But yeah, it yeah. definitely feels like a almost like a mockumentary style, but again, it's Truffaut and it's European, so it's it's less overt and it's not like wacky and, and crazy. But to me, there was definitely moments where it felt like he was poking fun at movie making, even though there's also this obvious nostalgia and this love for for making movie. And I mean, yeah, you do have some like the Jean Pierre Leo character, especially. Um, just being very childish and making, you know, poor yeah. decisions and, and just, you know, it's not the level of like wacky hijinks, but there's, there's definitely like some, some silly drama on set and, and whatnot. But, uh, so but to but me, it think, didn't feel like think, as realistic as, you know, say like, uh, you know, Jules and Jim or 400 blows or something. There's obviously like an oh, air no, of it's... levity and, and kind of. Oh yeah. Silliness. Yeah. It's definitely got a, a lighter air than that, but I mean, think of the way that Truffaut kind of informed some of these scenes that could have been very silly. Like, take the moment where Valentina Cortez as Severine is, uh, she's botching her lines mm -hmm. over and over. She's drunk, she's upset, yeah. she keeps opening the wrong door. You know, this could have been a farcical scene because they have two identical-looking doors next to each other, and she keeps opening the wrong one. And she's getting more and more aggravated, but like she's falling apart in a way that's kind of realistic. And then we learn through some dialogue on the side that she's here, despite the fact mm. that her son is back home in a hospital with leukemia yeah. and that they are, quote, expecting the call at any moment. Yeah. So like yeah. this this thing that could be this this manic kind of noises off style, like broad caricature of an actress becomes very tragic in its own way. Like she is she's working to kind of remove herself from the inevitability of this tragic situation that's coming her way. Yeah. And, uh, I think he does a good job of balancing those. And that's a good point to bring up that scene of just balancing the levity and the lightness with those little more realistic touches. So it's like kind of back and forth almost throughout. He never gets into too much melodrama or, or too much, you know, wacky comedy, but it's, uh, it's, it's just like a nice, even balance. And I think that's also what makes this a really watchable movie too. It's just easy yeah. to get into because of that. Well, when you think about it too, all of the issues that people are having, even whenever they, they quote unquote quit the film, even though they all come back, it's not because it's the film itself that's frustrating them. It's really kind of their personal lives, right? I mean, she, like you said, oh, sure. she's having issues because of the child. Uh, Alphonse, 
is having many, many, many romantic issues. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Julie as well, kind of having romantic issues. So even though, what's the character's name? It's the one played by uh, Natalie Bay. Uh, oh, Joel, the, stri- yeah. the script girl. Yeah, wonderful. my favorite character. Yeah, my favorite, yeah. probably my favorite character too. She's. I'm in agreement. She was my yeah. favorite as well. I actually looked her up because she looked really familiar. She was Leonardo DiCaprio's mother in Catch Me If You Can. Catch Me If You Can. Oh, yeah, okay. I just watched that movie this week uh, again. And yeah, she's great in that. Yeah. yeah, and she says everyone in this movie is nuts. But again, it's just, I feel like it's almost like he's kind of saying that to, to be involved in this, and they make a lot of references to it you're becoming these different characters. You're not exactly stable all the time. You don't have a lot to hold on to because these aren't like anchored productions. They end. I think there's a joke about them going to the unemployment line at the end of the movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 And I think we could, I mean, and even, I think we could argue too, is this a farce or a parody or a satire? And I think maybe you could argue a little bit for all. I think it's definitely parodying the film industry here as far as satire i'm not sure if he's saying anything about anything other than the film industry except maybe human nature a little hey, bit i mean i i would i would i would say this movie's a comedy like i would say like if we were to classify it i would say this is a comedy this is a funny movie i laughed really uh, hard a lot of times I'm yeah with comedy. it's 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 just not like it's it's not like a broad series of misunderstandings like you would normally understand farce to be. Yeah. And I feel like the the casting of Jean-Pierre Liot as Alphonse was kind of intentional too because oh, yeah. you know Jean-Pierre Liot oh, of course was sure. the lead in the 400 blows when he was a very young boy. So what we have here is a child actor, essentially a grown mm, child yeah. actor. And we've seen this kind of behavior in grown child actors who maybe uh, have a hard time not getting what they want immediately and who maybe struggle a little bit with uh, with with adapting to the real world because they've been kind of in this on this lens, you know, for their entire life. So I think that isn't in the text of the movie. We don't learn anything about Alphonse being a former child star or anything like that, but. I feel like the casting there is a little pointed towards oh, directing that. Character. Yeah, sure. I mean, just as Truffaut as the you know director Ferran is, you know, is pointed and self-reflective. Definitely Jean-Pierre Leo, like being in so many of other Truffaut films. That's that's kind of where I get that sense of almost like a mockumentary. Like we're poking fun out of ourselves and look at how ridiculous we are. This well, is I also a- feel like and. I really thought back to when my brother and I used to make you know, little movies back when I was in college that Truffaut has known Jean-Pierre Leo most of Leo's life. I mean, he was kind of like yeah. a father to him and he's made a lot of movies with him. And it's like, at this point, he knows how Alphonse can be funny. He knows how Leon can be funny. Just like I did when I, I made my brother make stupid faces and get sprayed in the face with water. He knows right. what's going to make Leo look ridiculous. Like when he walks out in the little nightshirt, after he's been dumped and <laughs> yeah. asked the whole right. crowd of people, can someone give me some money for a product? <laughs> or, or, yeah. Or when he's right. he looks out, later he on, looks he like an oversized toddler. The, cart, the go-kart track. And oh, yeah. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. Again, the that, they're, Truffaut yeah. knew. I think I that's feel like he was up at night and just giggling in his bed before he wrote this, thinking of ways that Jean-Pierre Leo would look ridiculous. And I right. feel like he, he played that out in this movie perfectly. Yeah, and again, it's kind of showing that that arrested development, you know, that yeah. like maybe he this is a this is a grown man who's kind of trapped in his childhood for <laughs> one reason or another, you know, that 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 nightshirt is a really funny choice because it makes him look like an oversized toddler, yes. like coming out like whining <laughs> for something, you know, 
And I had a moment in my notes where, like, uh, uh, after Alphonse finds out that Liliana's left him for the stuntman, I was like, oh, wow, he took that really well. And uh, <laughs> that lasted for 30 seconds right. because he was. He was just like, no, it, it makes sense. I, I wish her well. Like, he, he, he has this beat of being like, no, I understand. It, this probably is working out for the better. Uh, you know, I, I, I wish her well. And then it just immediately falls apart yes. and runs away. I feel like you that's know? where he's kind of buried right? in the actors. Uh, Right, right. Their reactions are always so extreme. How many times does someone say, I'm, I'm quitting movies or oh, right. yeah, I'm, I'm getting married or we have all these secret romances that I thought were really funny where you see one character with another and then they they say at the end of the movie, oh, I'm in love with this person and marrying them. Everyone's reactions to everything are very extreme and kind of flighty, which I feel like is, you know, a parody of actors. That's pretty yeah. funny. Oh, yeah, yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I feel like my my greatest joy from watching this movie, both both times I've seen it, is kind of watching the the complexity of even the simplest shots, mm. like the things that we take for granted, like a, a a shot of a car pulling into a driveway requires so much work and planning, and like people running out of the shot and people running into the shot, and like that that scene where they're walking through the square, and you're like, okay, wow, he's not just directing one actor walking through a crowd. He's directing dozens of groups of actors spread out all over, and he has to watch all of these elements. And so as we're watching that opening scene in the square, like play over and over and over again, we're seeing things too. We're seeing, oh, that guy wasn't there last time. Oh no, they're, they're doing something weird. Oh, that lady stopped to look at the camera. Like we're, we start, it's a really ingenious way of kind of putting us in the director's seat. So we kind of see what this movie's going to be like, you know, the, any, any real exposition uh, is spelled out in the early going through like an entertainment news interview, you know, where they just get to kind of say directly to the film, to the camera, Oh, this is the kind of movie we're making, blah, 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 blah. And then that's like out of the way. We don't need to establish that. And, and then it's just about the day to day minutia shot really too. how he's got that, that pan across the city street to where a lot of different people come into focus and it kind of trains you immediately to look for details and to look at everyone and see what's going on. And then like you said, yeah. to look for them later, see if they're doing the same thing or something different, especially the cat later on. The cat yeah, is the, cat. the best. <laughs> Apparently that was uh, something that was happening on Truffaut's movie, the soft skin. They had to have a kitten do like a scene like that, where they go in and drink some cream. And it was just a nightmare trying to get this cat to do what they wanted it to do. You know, the famous WC fields adage, you never work with animals and children. Uh, that <laughs> there's a reason for that. Uh, that one has one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's like over and over. They're trying with this kitten. Then finally, Joelle leaves. She skips the train kitten and goes for the studio cat, the little kitten that's been hanging around the studio. And it's weirdly suspenseful, but you are watching this very, <laughs> sure. very long take of this strange cat coming in, inspecting the food, inspecting the food. The camera's going in and out of focus. They're is trying to tighten it up, tighten it up. Yeah. Is he going to do it? Is this kitten going to drink some milk? It's like the most intense <laughs> scene in the movie. And like, it's a genuinely triumphant note when this kitten drinks milk. Right. And the movies put you so, uh, so firmly into this little filmmaking family that you feel the triumph that they feel at this little minute detail. It's a very cathartic moment, but I also love that even then there's a little humor because he's he's fussing at the cinematographer to get things back in focus. Like the cat, yeah. the cat is getting blurry <laughs> for a second. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, one thing you said, Steve, that uh, that really impressed me about this movie and like the different shots and the the calculation that it took to set all this up and 
where you have, you know, a camera filming a camera, a, a film crew filming a film crew. And you know, mm -hmm. just how it, it, there's obviously a level of calculation just by like knowing how they must have made this. But to me, it never feels ca very calculated. It feels very seamless and fluid. It, uh, it's, you know, obviously very formally impressive at the same time. But it, to me, it does slip from being in the movie they're making to being behind the scenes of the movie they're making so well there's just this added layer of feeling like we're watching the actual making of this movie that it kind of, I think it feel it, it almost helps hide the actual making of this movie that we're watching. And there's just like a wonderful exactly, light yeah. of hand there that I think is, it's, is just breathtaking. It's, it's amazing. That's exactly right. Like they're, they're showing us all the tricks and then they're still pulling the wool over our eyes anyway. It's like, <laughs> this is exactly how we do it. But you're not going to be thinking about that. You're not going to be thinking about the fact that we built a three-story window, uh, you know, that is probably <laughs> overlooking this shot of them looking out of a three-story window that they built. Right, like it's right. probably multiple like tiers going on up in this little scaffold, you know, and we're not thinking about it because we're kind of caught up in the story. So like this isn't just like a mockumentary thing. This isn't just a procedural right. how to make a movie. You do get caught up in what's going on without it being overly discursive, you know? Um, and, if, and that's kind of the one of that. Like, I, I love the way that uh, Truffaut was able to infuse these characters with real personalities and real like drives and passions without a whole lot of screen time. <clears throat> we talked about Natalie by like uh, Joelle, the script girl. She's one of the most well-developed characters in the movie. And she doesn't really have a lot of screen. Time. She's like sixth or seventh build in the film. And like, we get to know who she is through these little moments. Like she's got this, uh, I don't mean that I, I hope this isn't taken pejoratively. She's got this stage manager like energy to her, mm. you know, like I, I've, I've done a lot of theater. There's always somebody in the stage manager who is going to be no nonsense, direct, know exactly what they want, know exactly how to tell you and know how to wrangle up these actors without getting like too worked up. Yeah, and that's she, her. Like she almost comes across as more competent than Truffaut as the director. You know, like she's yeah. like I said, she's very no nonsense. But I mean, just Natalie Bai in '73 is a gorgeous woman too. You know, so oh, yeah. it's like uh, yeah. I mean, there's the the scene after she gets the flat and Bernard comes to help her. He makes some kind of off color joke about them sneaking off into the bushes, and she's just like. Okay, yeah, let's go, but let's hurry it up. Right, right. Like immediately, no hesitation, and to the point where he's shocked. He's like, "Wait, really?" She's like, "Yeah, look, I don't have time for this shit. Let's just, yeah, you know, if you, if you want to bang it out, let's bang it right. out. I can go for it. Let's." Yeah, and like you all talk, and I love also and that kind whenever of harkens back to her line quitting movies. She says, "Okay, good." Yeah, yeah. She's like, because she knows it's just a temper tantrum. She knows he's just saying this again, you know. And there, she has the great line later in the movie where she says, uh, I would leave a guy for a film, but I would never leave a film for a guy, you right. know, and <laughs> so you that's all we need to know. And, and, uh, we know Joelle so well just from watching her interact with these characters from that one line of dialogue and just the way that she kind of comports herself like yeah. and, and uh, Truffaut is able to do this with all of the characters. You know, the the ostensible lead of this movie is Jacqueline Bissett, uh, who uh Famously, one of the most beautiful women to ever be on film. Um, yeah. She traditionally was only cast in kind of like bombshell roles. You know, she's she's most famous today, I think, for the movie The Deep, uh, which is the, the first thing I ever saw her in. Right. Which is also 
uh, inadvertently the movie that invented the concept of the wet t-shirt contest oh. <laughs> uh, because of uh, some some costume choices that they made with Bissett in that movie. So, like, that's kind of the level that she's usually cast on. And yeah. I think she really gets to show some range here, which is very cool. Uh, as she she's, speaks French beautifully for a British actress. Uh, and I, I think there are a lot of, like, really nice small moments. Like, there's a moment after uh, she has a bit of her breakdown, after uh, Alphonse calls her husband and she's locked herself in her room. And, uh, you know, and the makeup girl comes in to work on her and she says, Yes, let's make ourselves beautiful. And there's just a look that passes across her face after she says that where she's just like it's it's clear that she's like, "Oh god, is that all I am?" Like like she's got that moment. She's got that moment like like, "Okay, I'm going to just I'm just going to paste over everything, you know? I'm feeling pain, but I'm going to make myself beautiful." It's a lot to be conveyed in just like a subtle gesture and i don't think uh, jacqueline Bissett gets enough credit as like the really talented actor she is yeah um, i agree even yeah, really good on i know she was disappointed that all the focus was on her appearance because I mean, full disclosure i was a huge peter benchley fan when i was in like middle school because he wrote jaws which right one of the only books that's not better than the movie but i read oh my movie. god that affair with hooper oh it was horrible <laughs> It was awful. Sorry. Oh. Out of God, I'll bring that up in the Jaws episode. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, and The Deep is not much better. So just no. the fact that she was disappointed that her appearance took away from the story and other things in the movie there shows you that she's she's taking this crap very, very seriously. And I agree. There's a lot of nuance and really everything she does in this movie. Yeah. Oh. And that kind of goes for everybody. You know, like the... The kind of warm heart of the movie, I would say, is probably Alexandra, the uh, the aging leading man who's kind of uh, kind of tentatively coming out of the closet. You know, like he uh, I, it's clear that he's not like out out with his friends, but he's starting to bring his boyfriend around uh, who he's weirdly kind of saying like, oh, he's my son. I want to I want to adopt him, adopt him yeah. <laughs> which isn't really fooling anybody. But like he's. He he's kind of in that like Cary Grant, Rock Hudson sort of vein of like classical leading men who uh, kind of come to embrace their their sexuality as they get older. But he is he's all professionalism and like warmth and whimsy. Like he's he represents old time Hollywood class. Everybody likes him. Everybody gets along with him. And I think that's the cool thing we're seeing too. Like there aren't a lot of like big egotistical throwdowns like nobody's really uh refusing to work or, or or countering Truffaut or doing any of that they they all are showing up wanting to work and wanting to do a good job and being professional which is kind right, of a like cool way of seeing it because I feel like yeah the most behind the scenes movies you see like try and play up that that drama of it you know and this one doesn't really work on that yeah, like with the Severin character played by Valentina Cortez, like you almost expect that, right? Based on other films that show you behind the scenes where she's this drunk aging actress who's really dramatic and she's having these breakdowns. So you kind of expect to see this kind of pampered puppy aspect of her, but you never really get that. Uh, she never really goes there. And it's almost shocking where we, after we get that breakdown scene, you have other scenes where she's actually working and doing well and remembering her lines is like, Oh, wow. Okay. They're not going to go there. That's really interesting. Yeah. But, uh, to bring it back to, um, Natalie Bay and Jacqueline Bissett and, uh, the women yeah. and, and their beauty in this film, 
Uh, don't, do you guys find that the French and I'd say especially Godard and Truffaut, the way they filmed women like was almost obsessive, like, or, and not, oh, yeah. not in like necessarily a bad way, but there's obviously just a lot of love for their women in their films. And I just recently Truf watched uh, Godard's Vivre Sa Vie and uh, Band of Outsiders and I mean, a, a lot of uh, pages have been written about Godard's love and obsession with uh, his wife, Anna Karina, and how he filmed her. But yeah, it's it's really striking uh, compared to, I mean, there's obviously some sexualization there that's similar to what we have is like, you know, the objectification of women in a lot of films nowadays. But there's, I don't know, there's something like more whimsical and poetic about uh, their view of women as well, which I Yeah, like. Truffaut isn't as uh, leering as some of his peers can be, yeah. particularly Godard. Like there, there is the moment here with Natalie Bay changing and her bra is really just basically a, a thin, clear sheet. Yeah. But like for the most part, like uh, I mean, even Jacqueline Bissett said she was excited to work on this movie because she, she likes working with directors who like women. Yeah. And that's, that's Truffaut. I mean, Truffaut, Definitely a womanizer. He got around a little bit. He had some issues with that. But uh, uh, I do think there's it's generally coming from a loving place. I think there's a lot of respect here. But we also get some other characters like LeJoie's wife, who is just kind mm, of like yeah. angry and shrewish and just follows her around. I liked that character. I thought she was funny because yeah. uh, she's just she's just kind of a, a living example of one of those complications you can't really prepare for on a movie set. Like... <laughs> How are you supposed to know that the production manager was going to have his shrewish wife following him around, like making sure he doesn't talk to any other women <laughs> and occasionally right. she pops in and just condemn all of their lifestyles and, Oh, you yeah. movie people. Ah. The way that he's like, it's just pretty pretty weird. Weird. Another, yeah. so beautiful. Oh yeah. I how, yeah. I love how he's like the schlubbiest guy on the crew, but he's got this yeah. wife who's afraid of the girls going for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's afraid of him. Yeah. That's the problem. I want to talk a little bit about Truffaut's character here too, because uh, like we said, like Truffaut is a very natural actor, I think. And he's, he's really good at this. I don't know if this is what his directorial style was like, but there's something about Ferrand uh, who it's, I think he's doing what you think a director should be doing, which is that he's maintaining calm and he's, he's uh, uh, rolling with the punches as much as possible. And he's always like working and always thinking of ways to, to fix things. But he also, like, he gets the only, um, like, internal monologues in this movie, except for, like, one line that Julie gets. Right. Where, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, he's he's kind of discussing, like, what it feels like from the director's standpoint to make a movie. He says, you start off wanting to make it the best thing possible, then you run into some roadblocks, and you kind of just want to get it done. But then sometimes things click into place, and, and you want to start salvaging what you had and trying to make it the best possible film you can. I wonder, so we're seeing him ride these waves. I wonder if that was almost confessional on Truffaut's, Truffaut's part, whereas, you know, oh, looking no at his uh, filmography and some, you know, obviously there's some standout films and there's others that you could kind of tell he was less engaged. But yeah, that moment where he kind of narrates how, you know, you start a production with such optimism and then halfway through, you're just hoping to get through it all. Uh, you know, it's definitely autobiographical, and he was an autobiograph autobiographical filmmaker in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, look at the 400 blows about his own childhood, the cruelty definitely. of his home life, and then, you know, apparently his parents never talked to him again after he exposed them with that movie. 
but uh yeah there's a lot of self-reflection in day for night for sure how did definitely experience uh i just pulled a y'all out yes we are from baton rouge film (laughs) yes that's all right i'm i'm i i use y'all i usually all the time very nice how do y'all interpret his dreams because Obviously, we see a little more of his internal life than anyone else, and we see that mm. he's having these dreams where he's walking down to a movie theater as a child, and we see a little bit more with each successive one until it's the last one. I believe it's the third. We see him peel off these Citizen Kane stickers from this cart that he pulls over to a gate, and I kind of mm. wondered, obviously, we're seeing that he loves cinema and that he has a love and an obsession for cinema, but is there a piece of him that feels like he's not measuring up to his idols or maybe those that came before him? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. He, you know, and and there's a scene where uh, he gets a package of books, you know, and it's just all books from his favorite filmmakers, you know, Rossellini and Hitchcock. And uh, one of the interesting ones that he pulls out of that, I think was the book about Godard because not only is Godard a peer and a close friend, uh, this movie caused kind of a rift between them. Right. So uh, after this movie came out, it was this huge success, and uh, Godard saw it and hated it, and he thought it was like a lie, and he accused him of just selling out and going mainstream, and then he and, he and Truffaut just kind of got into it and had a whole war of words, and then this ended their friendship. They had a friendship for 20 years, and this ended it, uh, which, of course, you know, uh, Truffaut would, be, would, would uh, pass away 10 years later, and at that time, Godard... Uh, expressed regret for how he treated him, and he wrote this very long, like, beautiful tribute to his friend. Um, Which is so, funny. You know, I don't these... know if you guys read the 20-page letter response that Truffaut wrote to Godard. I have to admit, no, I did read the entire 20 pages. Oh, jeez. I did. I read all 20. Wow. It's incredible. Okay. It's really hard to feel any pity for Godard at the stuff that Truffaut is saying, but you also get the sense, because I've read what Godard said, obviously, that cause Truffaut to respond in this way. You Call almost feel like shit. <laughs> he calls him a lot yeah. of things, Jordan. He calls yeah. him a whole lot of things. He's, he's tells him, a he's petite merd, on a I believe. he tells him that he know. values all these ideals about humanity because, you know, he was very interested in Marxism, but he tells him that he's lost sight of individuals. He goes, I mean, it's really, really incisive. And it almost feels like these two guys have known each other for so long and they were there with each other in the in the beginning you know when they were writing on film and then when they started actually making films they were together a lot and working together a lot you almost feel like there are these little things that irritated each other uh you know that they kept under that finally just came to the surface and exploded here and i haven't seen enough godard films or Truffaut films to really say this definitively but the the main takeaway that you get from the letter is just that he feels like Godard is a fake because he's not living up to the ideals he espouses because he's only seeing ideals and not humans whereas Truffaut is saying yeah. that he cares about individual people there's a dig at at the actor who played Alphonse here who was also the kid in 400 blows horrible pronunciations Leo where mm. apparently Godard also wrote something nasty to Alphonse, basically Alphonse, I'm sorry, Leo, where he was asking him for money because he asked Truffaut for money in the letter that he wrote him. Right. You know, basically, your movie sucks. Sure. Give me some money so that I can make a better movie. It's basically just what he told him. <laughs> right. But he that's, also, a, that's a compelling argument. Yes, yeah. He also <laughs> wrote a letter within that to Leo asking him for money as well. And this is what incensed Truffaut because to him, the older Godard asking the young man Leo for money was absolutely awfully insulting 
he never let Leo read the letter. He actually mailed that back to Godard. Hmm. So pretty big yeah. rip there from that. Yeah, I think it's interesting in, in the how... way that only like French filmmakers can fight. <laughs> sure. Like, I feel like that's letters. like, yeah, we're, we're going to exchange angry, long letters. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And just, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just great. It, I think, uh, but you I know, think yeah, but I mean, to... Godard was, uh, you know, highlighting how Truffaut is, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's criticizing Truffaut for highlighting a form of movie making, like the studio type of production and, and uh, criticizing him for that, for like, I guess, being nostalgic about those kind of movies and calling it phony. But, you know, when you consider the actual film, that's really interesting. You know, the day, the film Day for Night and, you know, the mixture of Truffaut, you know, I feel like Truffaut himself highlights the fakery of cinema. He's peeling back the curtain. He shows us the multiple takes, the fake buildings, the fake rain, all that stuff. But, you know, at the same time, he still maintains to capture this magic of filmmaking, the magic of movies. And, you know, that's mostly done with uh, George Delarue's score, how it's woven yeah. into these montage moments. You know, it's this very upbeat, whimsical lilting of strings and whatnot. Yeah. Another movie I <laughs> randomly just watched for. Oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. We did a whole episode yeah. on that, but yeah, sure, like, I, mean, yeah I don't know, but yeah, I know. I, I, but there's something really true and magical on top of it that this film captures, you know, even though it's pulling back the curtain, you know, it, it's amazing that he can show you all the tricks and yet you can still be fooled. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, even when he's, he's making kind of like little witty, sarcastic references to like structure and film theory, like there's a, there's a literal Chekhov's gun in this movie. Like in the beginning, <laughs> we introduce a gun in the first act and it's just literally Truffaut picking out the gun that is going to be used in the killing scene at the end. But then it comes back. We don't see that gun again until the final act of the movies. You know? So it's kind of just Love like this it. witty little reference. And of course, the gun is inert and it's not going to actually hurt anybody. So it's just kind of like a little inside joke. But this, like this show the, is like. How'd you like the Fellini nod where uh, Severin says, can I just say numbers like I do with Frederico? Yes, <laughs> I love that. So again, good. that's so like inside baseball. But like, yeah, Italian films, they would uh, they would dub over all their dialogue later. So actors didn't need to have scripts memorized. And it didn't even really matter what you were saying as long as you were getting the emotional intensity across. So, yeah, so she's just counting and saying the numbers in the line uh, direction. And she says, no, here in France, we have to learn our lines. Yeah. Which is, we uh, have live audio here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love how gentle and um, commanding he was when he yeah, tells her. I love those little touches. There's like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and uh, even like. Yeah, there, yeah, there's I, not I, a whole ton of that in the movie. I feel like he, he does well to give, you know, sprinkle it in where it's not just, you know, inside jokes, the whole film. So I, I thought no. that was nice to have a few of those here and there. Most definitely. Most definitely. Um, <clears throat> I think I am about at the end of my notes here. I've, I've, I've kept you guys yammered for a while here. Uh, do we have any final things we'd like to say about day for night before we, uh, before we close out? Well, I mentioned the score briefly, but I, I really love it. The George Delarue score and the montages, like, again, it, it skirts a fine line to, between like the sense of reality that we're trying to capture, you know, on, uh, on the film set and then breaking off into these montages that again, just kind of are whimsical and, you know, just playing with 
how you know beautiful filmmaking is and how this is a wonderful thing. So I like that um, that scene. You know, basically you open up the film with the the wavelength of the score during the credits sequence, and then you don't get the score for the rest of the film until George actually calls Truffaut on, you know, they, they listen to uh, the score he's working on over the phone. And that's where you get the little montage of the filmmaker books that he pulls out of the package. And then after that, that's when you have the, uh, the score introduced afterwards. Uh, I don't believe we get any before then where it, uh, it's finally kind of comes back into the film after the credit sequence. And then you have those montages with the, the score kind of uh, being kind of thrown in and here and there yeah. between the different disasters on set. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I it's like really good. It also kind of punctuates moments where a scene ends and you kind of get a still frame of an actor's face for a moment. I thought that was really beautiful. He did that a lot. There were a lot of interesting, like some of the hallway shots were like still frames. But yeah, they didn't, that was they didn't need to be. There was nothing happening in the hallway, but they were clearly like still frames. So yeah. it almost kind of made me wonder, like, did they not have anything to fill the transition? So you know, they just grabbed like a still frame. But, uh, right. But I mean, Truffaut's pretty famous for his like freeze frame and stuff too. Yeah. And I, I feel like he's intentional enough that there would be a reason behind all of that. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you guys so much for coming and having such a great discussion about this movie. Uh, I'm so glad to have rediscovered it. I'd, I'd love to point people to some kind of streaming platform that carries this movie, uh, but that does not exist. I, I had to go through some uh, back channels to access this movie. It seems to only exist on DVD, which itself is out of print, uh, and that's one of those things that makes yes, me really I, mad. Because I had to back channel it as well. There was one copy at the library. I let Jordan have that, and I back channeled mm -hmm. it. But I'm so glad I did. I really like movies where they they feel alive. It feels like there's just real life here that's ongoing and continuous, and there's a cohesion yeah. to the movement in it. I just really enjoy. You can really see how maybe early 2000s people like Wes Anderson taking a lot from movies like this. The oh, for sure. So well, yeah, uh, yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah. Speaking of the library, I'd say just try your public library. If you uh, try a public library. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that we have a really good, uh, like local indie video store that's still thriving. Nice. It's called film is truth. Uh, but unfortunately they were checked out of the movie before I could use it. Uh, so yes, apologies had to go through some back channels, but yeah, this there's a. Uh, I, I would really love for this movie to be made like more readily available so people can discover it. It's really a delight and it's worth tracking down. So thank you so much to both of my guests. Uh, it's been really great having you guys here. Can you tell us a little bit more about where people can find you, about some of your other projects, uh, all all of that stuff? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Nick and I host Film Shake, the '90s movies podcast. So. Uh, every month we come out at, with an episode where we talk about only 90s movies, usually humorous takes. Uh, we have a trivia battle at the end of every show where Nick usually beats me and punishes me <laughs> with a terrible movie. So yeah, okay. it's a lot of fun. So check it out. Um, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere where you get your podcasts. And I'd say our groove is definitely not great 90s movies. We're probably not going to watch Magnolia. We're more apt to watch maybe a movie that's both awesome and terrible at the same time. We just released an episode on Waterworld, which is oh. awesome in its way, but also quite terrible in its way. <laughs> so we have a lot I, of fun with movies like that. I will defend that movie unironically. I think Waterworld is an amazing adventure film. 
yeah, yeah, that's that's an awesome pick. Uh, it's a great podcast, and I think it's uh, definitely worth checking out. So thank you guys both for being here. Uh, we are Rogers List at all the different, or Rogers List Pod rather at all the different social medias, uh, Instagram and Twitter and uh, Gabunda. The the I don't know. I'm making up one. So, uh, there, there's probably one out there called Gabunda. You need a it's like, that. it's the best social media so platform. So there's no uh, there's no vowels in that word <laughs> Gabunda. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, be sure to tune in next week when we are watching a movie that is on my list that I haven't looked at, so I'm vamping until I can open it. We're going to be watching the movie Paris, Texas. Oh, yeah, we're moving from Paris, France to Paris, Texas. Yeah. Uh, a great Vim Vendors film from 1984. Harry Dean Stanton, Natasha Kinski. Uh, really, really good. I'm excited to dig into that one uh, once again. It's been too long since I've seen it. Best movie. So thank you again. Oh, yes. Throw that out there. What's that? I said best movie of the 80s. Oh, that's a bold statement. Bold statement. Best movie of the 80s. All right. We're we're going to stake your. I don't know if I'd say best. Maybe. It might be top 10. It might be top 10 for me. I'll have to look at it again. I'll let you guys know. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, Tune in next week for Paris, Texas, and we will uh, see you all next time. Thanks, everybody. Au revoir.